This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. On this episode, I gain many new perspectives on the creative process from a writer, an actor, a filmmaker, a mother, and an activist, all embodied in one very talented, multidisciplinary artist. She is a soul-centered entrepreneur hailing from Houston, Texas, and she joins me to express her affection for the Oxford comma, to explain why her show Fatherland was created as a ceremony with a ritual attached, and how along the way, she addresses grief while learning to hold love and anger in the same hand. Just ahead is my candid dialogue with creative superpower, Candace DeMeza. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, la, la. Hello, Pat. I'm so excited to be here. I am excited to have you, and I'm going to force you right into a controversial subject, the Oxford comma. <laughs> Which side of that do you stand on? I am Oxford comma all day, and they'll never take it from me. They'll have to pry it from my cold, dead hands. <laughs> <laughs> well, since you're an advocate, maybe tell people why that is such a powerful tool for you. Oh, my gosh. Especially for me, I have these tangential thoughts so often. And the Oxford comma to me is just the best way to delineate that and keep it moving, right? And just tangent after tangent in one sentence. I love, I love a long, I love a good long sentence. I love an Oxford comma. <laughs> and where do you stand on the ellipses? The three dots that people put, particularly writers and screenwriters, I think it's they overuse it in the crazy way. I'm a big fan of using ellipses when I talk in person and just, you know, kind of drifting off dot dot dot. <laughs> That's great. Well, the thing is, when you, you do it in person, you're not saying dot, 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 though. It is funny now that the ellipses is a thing you see in a text when you're waiting for somebody to write you. And sometimes it's the most annoying thing to look at. Like, come on already. I need a response. It is. I just learned just now when you said it that I'm not supposed to do it in person. But I, I do say dot, 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 just to create the suspense in case they miss it. I just want to make sure. And are you one of those people then that actually puts the quote marks on with your fingers when you say certain things? Oh, definitely. Air quotes. And I also like to make a joke and tell people that was a joke just to nail it on the head. Make, <laughs> sure, they, make sure they get everything I'm throwing out. Well, for anybody just joining us, I want them to know that you are a very talented writer, performer. I happened to watch your piece Fatherhood last night and was really taken by how powerful it was and how personal it was. Can you maybe give an overview of what the journey is from your perspective? Because I know that it, you face getting to know your father after he passed and facing that grief. So tell me a little bit about the approach on that and how difficult it was for you to come to that content. Ooh, I know Fatherland as the piece that I never really wanted to write. I guess the seed for it started when I watched a colleague of mine did a, a piece that was this choreo poem theater piece about the massacre of Haitians along the border with the Dominican Republic. And her piece, uh, Jasmine Mendez, is called City of Altar. And I was blown away by watching a narrative about Haiti and thought, I should probably ask my dad, who wanted to be a writer, about his upbringing. And I did. I did contact him I told him to just write me things so I could have them. I believe he may have written me two things. The next kind of big bit of communication that happened was after he died. I got a call and he was brain dead and his family called me to say if I wanted to fly immediately to Brooklyn, New York, to see him and kind of make peace. And I ended up having this discovery 
kind of knowing then that there might be some art that came of it. But after getting there and planning his funeral and I didn't know him and oh my God, it was an up and down journey. I was doing a lot of writing just to kind of process that experience. And in this weird way, and I I hate to tell it sometimes, but the night I came home from the hospital, I felt like the spirit of my father. See, I did air quotes. Listeners won't see it, but That's I did good. air quote about <laughs> spirit of my father was sitting at a table near where I was. And I felt as if he said, I want to write a piece with you, which I was like, <laughs> no, absolutely not. But it inadvertently, I feel like we we did. We wrote this piece of coming together after he died. Yeah. And I'll tell you what. You describe it as a ceremony with a ritual at the end, and you invite the audience to participate in that ritual. And I thought that interactivity really, even though I watched it in a film form on my computer, I felt that connection that we feel in theater. And you use so many amazing analogies and theatrical devices. Like you begin this film at the edge of ocean waves, which my recollection is the opening line was something like water holds memories. That analogy with grief coming in waves and going in waves was carried throughout. There was an intimacy to it. I knew you were talking from a true place, which, as you say, is some of the hardest stuff to write. You also mentioned in your dad writing this with you, and you don't really mean that theoretically, because near the end of the piece, you are reading words that he wrote that essentially become the eulogy. I want people to see it, of course, and Fatherland is available on your website or a connection, a link to it is available there. But you also collaborated with projection and with light, and you made the most of silences that I've seen anybody make. Mm. Your voice serves as a narrative in quite a bit of this film. But it's in those silent moments, what you're doing as, and acting and how you're playing it out, that we see a real emotion that you have to revisit every with every performance. Yes. How does that feel? It felt horrible, to, to be quite frank. The silences were important because I started to think about grief a lot and what the experience of grief really is. And and how grief is experienced so privately in our society and really wanting to just open that up for other people. But I really think really for me and other people, I, I wanted other people to witness it so that maybe I didn't feel so alone, but the act of doing so was completely terrifying. And I had received funding from the city of Houston to put it on. And then I partnered with Dages theater here in Houston. So there was a lot of support. I mean, this was not a surprise that this was getting made. But when we finally got into the rehearsal space, I regretted every single decision I'd ever made that brought me to doing something so vulnerably in a public forum. And I really didn't feel good about it until I got the first comment back from someone that they had cried and connected to their own memory of, of someone that had passed and other people's difficulty with certain family members and grappling with their memories after they pass that I felt, I felt better about that type of vulnerability. I'm sure initially it seems like personal therapy, which you don't want to expose, but what I experience or know is that probably versus other performance you've done where you've been in a show written by someone else is there are two different lines after that show. And there's the people who enjoyed it. And then there's the people who want to hug you because you were talking to them about their own lives and they needed someone to put voice to loss and a voice to emptiness. You talk about emptiness is being a gift and that it's a container that you, that you choose how to fill it. I think giving people the words to, to understand it and again, I, each person reacts differently to grief. I think it's this is a perfectly good forum to talk about it. I think one of the greater descriptions I heard was that grief is love that doesn't know where to go. Mm. And so it's always there. It, it exists. 
and it, and you carry it with it, but it pulls the car over every so often on you. <laughs> the least you expect it, then the tears come flowing. I think this is a very, very powerful piece on grief. And the thing that was the scariest to me is the real found audio, because we were hearing the voice of your dad from a recording, and I was imagining what that was like for you on stage to hear him in present tense while talking about it in past tense. Yeah. In the very beginning, there's the audio of the actual phone call of my uncle calling me basically to tell me that my father had passed. So I used that actual audio and then I did call my uncle and tell him I was making this piece and he was all too excited to do the voice of another character. It was really funny. Uh, His daughter graduated from NYU in musical theater. And so he's he was like, you know, I'm a patron of the arts. So, you know, if you need me, and I do, <laughs> I did. Speaks fluent Creole and and I use a lot of themes from Haitian Vaudoux. And so it was perfect. I gave it to him and he knocked it out the part. He played a Papa Leg, but I did the voice for that. That felt really good to have his his endorsement, knowing that the show's about his brother and you know, my father was an addict. So Yeah, I think I do explicitly say it. No one really talks about it. No one explicitly says it. But it was nice to, with his family, to make something beautiful out of what really, really was not necessarily a very beautiful life, to just tell the truth as it is. I do think there's a great legacy in this to seeing your reflection in the mirror, which means that you see your dad in you and the fact that his writing and your writing live on together in this piece. And while addiction was something that crippled him of using his talents in one way, the bloodline does not mean that you carry the punishment of your father's deeds. And in some ways, you reconcile that for him by reading his words as a performer. And it's, yeah, it's just really generous and really healing in a way. So I, you know, I just think I, when I see a piece like that, I think, oh, this is primarily very brave. It's really, I mean, I get emotional talking about it because I always, I think so many people skip it. They sort of avoid that door. And then subsequently we have another Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. (laughs) People just want to go somewhere that they avoid emotion. Yeah. Which I completely understand the, the impulse I'm still very surprised because I think that I'm hilarious. Uh, and I spend, <laughs> most of my time is spent laughing. And it's interesting that the, the work that I create tends to keep revisiting grief. I, and I just, sometimes I just have questions about this. Like, why, why me? Why? I want to do funny stuff. I want to talk to aliens. And I do think, especially in the pandemic and even how this piece got, got formed. Like I felt like it was formed by the legacy and my father as in Vodou, an ancestor and my grandmother as ancestor forming this piece around me. And then the pandemic formed it because it was supposed to be an in-person ritual. It was supposed to be in a theater I had no concept of digital theater at the time, recording, any of that, and having to quickly adapt it. How do we make a film about an in-person experience that's also filmed? There's a film behind it, and then you're filming you in front of a film. (laughs) It just felt like a box within a box. And it became, I'm really happy how it turned out because I think had the pandemic not shifted it, had this medium of digital theater not grown the way it did in the pandemic. I think it needed to be accessible in this way and it needed to be an offering that other people can access because we have lost so much in the pandemic. We've lost so much. There's so much grief and less community around it just because of the nature of not being able to gather and having a place to ritualize grief and name grief, whether we're crying because a father or just grieving just because the grief is at the ready. It accomplished what I intended it to accomplish, but it did it in a larger scale because then I could share it with so many more people without restriction. And 
And that in some way, I think is a beautiful transformative element of grief and also a strange redemption to this pretty sordid relationship with my father. And I continue to revisit that when I think about the world and, and, oh, I even feel emotional about the, about it, but there can be restoration to in relationships and in places where we think that the story is final. You can go back into these stories and redeem them still, that there's still life, even in places where we think is death. It has pretty big implications, I think, for the world and, and my life in general and how I view, view things ongoing as an ongoing basis. Yeah, it's funny to me, I discovered that death was not the final word or final chapter in my dad's life in writing a piece where it was talking, making fun of my mom, uh, making us all sign our organ donor cards. Because when we were 16 and got our driver's license, like you sign that right now. And so we all would sleep with one eye open, afraid that she was going to harvest our organs. But (laughs) what I was writing this piece and talking about that. And when my dad passed, he disintegrated over time where she began to grieve for him while he was still alive because of Alzheimer's and things changed the relationship of him as a human being. And she lost him, but he was still there, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so uh, her grieving took place mostly when he was there. And so you think the final period would be that the moment that's marked by death. But the truth is, is her having us sign organ donor cards mean that the dental school that took his teeth, that people are studying, that he lives on in chapters that follow him by quite a bit. And that really made me think, oh, this story is a for anybody to realize that your greatest hits album will outlive you. Yeah. The things, the good things you do in life and the support that you show others will ultimately make that carry on in your kids. And I see you now have one on your lap, which is great. Yes. And it does carry on because my father, we have these genes, this nose. We have this ear that misses like a piece of cartilage where it looks like it's almost been bitten off. And I just keep thinking about Mike Tyson. Do you guys remember that when Mike Tyson... (laughs) Bit Evander Holyfield's ear. I was. I never recovered from that moment. I didn't know that was possible. Number one, childhood me continues to revisit that. But yeah, we all of my children, all three of them, have this same ear and this nose from my father. So kudos to him and the genetics. That, at least you know they're your kids. It's like when you have to describe them to somebody. Say, just go in there, go to the schoolyard, get the three kids that have the ears bitten off, send them out. Sure. Let's talk about your the themes that you write within, because you do have some very rich, important themes to yourself, and some of it is your heritage, and some of it is your race, and the sort of the dynamic when you approach a piece, how theme may lead the way. I have been discovering the themes as I go. I I learn I'm learning so much about my own self only after something has been created, and I sometimes don't know what I write or. Because what I wish that I wrote is definitely not what comes out. I, I want to write comedy, but there's a lot of themes about grief. Culture is a big, is really important. And I do feel that in my work, I do the things that I can't do with just my words, especially when it comes to race and racism and some of these structures that are so entrenched in society. I find that art and the merging of spirituality with art in particular gives me more access to to reshape and reclaim timelines, you know, on ritual, I find is like a, a, a very compelling medium combining art and ritual to do that. I have another piece called Whale, which is also a ritual performance documentary piece and it revisits the history of what's called the Sugarland 95 which were 95 bodies that were unearthed outside of Houston, Texas in in Sugarland, the city called Sugarland in 2018 and it was a burial ground for convict leased inmates right after emancipation and this history has been buried they just threw these bodies here between 18, I believe 1895 and 1912. 
and moved on. And uh, I did a piece to honor that particular history and the grief around that to kind of using grief to have ceremony, another way of having ceremony around these complicated histories and hopefully allowing some joy to come through after we grieve them and, and giving name to what these type of histories are. So I find that I, I just cannot escape these complicated relationships to grief and land and that are wrapped up in as well, like race and racism and white supremacy and the way that our system has shaped itself and who has suffered because of it. I think what you're doing, and I, and I admire it, is that you're standing up for story. The word history has story on the back end of it. And the story isn't always being told truthfully or fully, I guess I would say. So the fact that you are able to shine a light on some of these areas that have not told or told from a biased standpoint or ignored intentionally, it's also something that's really, it's a welcome thing in our world right now because the storyteller helps us see the change from the outside. But what has to happen at the same time is we have to have the change on the inside. And I think that that's what the viewer has to feel and they have to walk away with wanting to have more dialogue or explore it a little bit more. But if it doesn't get discussed, just like the earlier thing we talked about is if we don't open those doors, for some reason, we think it's going to be okay. But it's time to do the hard work in everything, whether that's gender or race or sexuality. We have to stop avoiding things. I guess that's the arts does it, I think, in the most beautiful way or the most inviting way, because sometimes people sing the words to songs they don't know until they hear themselves singing it, that there's a new anthem out to learn from. I agree. You mentioned that until, like there can't be change until people feel it on the inside. I keep trying to get to that because I have a bachelor's in black studies and a master's in public administration. And when you come at race and racism and these structural, these structural oppressive systems, right? And how they're affecting all of us unilaterally. I mean, I don't think anybody is not affected personally and losing something, but there's just so much rhetoric around these topics. And I think the worst thing that happens is we talk about them from an intellectual place and none of these are experienced at the level of intellect. And even when people change their mind, they don't change their heart, which means we continue to act in the same ways. And I used to have these long Facebook live rants where I'm educating or a teaching and people get better at using the language, but they don't get better at using empathy. And I just figured that art really is like with art, you can bypass all of that. We can go around all of that. And when people feel it, they can attach to that place in their body where something has moved and shifted. And, and then we can give it name, you know, beautiful words and language and picture and color. But that I feel like is the place of artists and storytellers that we can make that change in, in ways that you're just hitting your head on a wall constantly. It really, really requires a much deeper work by the participant. <laughs> and I'm including myself. I'm not here to preach. I'm saying I see that we are making improvements in the world. We see more casting of performers. We see more commercials of representation. But what we don't see, leadership, decision-making, access, so that kind of work is the BIPOC community knows intimately what it's like to have the burden of oppression on their hearts. Mm. And you have to have that. They know what it's like to continue to be marginalized for generations. And that's not something I can say that I'm aware of in my position. I grew up in a different place. And we've talked with other guests about how the word privilege can sometimes trigger people or do other things. But I look at it as being able-bodied. I look at it as not having to sleep in my car. There's so many things that are privileged that are not about wealth, and they just are about being able to wear a hoodie down the street. They are simpler things that we take for granted. I put myself in the learning seat. Even at my age, I feel like every day my eyes are open to something, and if I can be an advocate or if I can be supportive, uh, it allows dialogue to flow. We have to get our talk out front, and then we have to get our experiences, as you say, the art, 
We have to get it in front of people. And somewhere along the line, it eases the pain, I think, when people start to know other human beings. We had a great guest on, Don Reed, talks about knowing the other person's story, not seeing what you think and making a judgment, but actually knowing their story, knowing who they are, because I think the human connection is the core. The humanity of it is where we see family, where we see pain and pleasure and all of those things come from one human and another, not two different uniforms in a war fighting the opposite uniform. I know that's kind of a simplified Dr. Seuss approach to to putting people on opposite sides, but everything seems to be about divide these days. Yeah, I agree. It's really tricky. I find myself still kind of getting wrapped up in the in the divides because they're all created. They're all socially created. They're all arbitrary. They are real, but they're not true. And that nuance is hard sometimes to hold, even for myself, is that you, sometimes you're using the divide to break the divide. And that can be this loop, this endless loop, where even with the privilege Privilege is so real and it doesn't have any bounds. Like you said, it's not just race and and class and gender. It's the way in which any particular group is privileged over another ability, physical shape and form, so many things. But I think what I keep having to remind myself is that, and especially I think in terms of race and this workshop I developed that was used theater of the oppressed type to kind of get to this unnamed privilege and could be whiteness, could be any unnamed privilege, is that the crisis is really a lack of empathy. If we look at race as only these people are oppressed, or we look at a group, uh, any ism, and these people are oppressed and we have to save them, we forget that when any person is oppressed, what we have lost, those who are not in that group, we have lost our own humanity. I need to intervene not to save you, but to reclaim my own humanity because I have been limited in the empathy that I'm able to embody and give because a society or ideology has told me that I shouldn't give it here. It's, it's forced me into like almost this sociopathy that I didn't choose for myself. That's really amazing. I, I appreciate you articulating that. It's this, it's to, to intervene, to reclaim ourself for ourselves to say, I get to embody empathy as fully as I can. And nobody outside of me gets to determine how large I get to give it to someone based on any arbitrary factor. And, and I think when we think of it like that, then we can gather like for whale, it was filmed. It was part of the film, but there was a community ritual on the site open to the public because all of us lose something here. And all of us have something to gain by looking at this history and saying, this is all of ours. What can we do and what can we create moving forward on this land here? I think that is where, when all of the history is all of ours, when all of us have a buy into the story, then I think it becomes important for us to all figure out how we get to move forward together. And there's that little voice. Tell us who you're with there. So this is my co-conspirator. Her name is Amara Naima, and she is two months old. And she was in my body <laughs> while we created whales. So as we were creating all of this ritual and around this particular land history, this was growing. So there should have been two names in the program there if you knew her name in advance. I know. I should they went on stage with you every night, huh? Yes. It is interesting how our offspring and our parents become a big part of our storytelling. My mom charging me for a stamp when I would take it was a lesson in that it had some value. And my dad being sure that I put $2 worth of gas in the car when I went out at night became a part of what I tell my kids, not the same amount, but it's like, don't bring me back a car with an empty gas tank. That's not a part of how this works. So storytelling is definitely something that we pass down. And I guess to reflect back on what you were just talking about on the bigger picture, what people don't realize is that race itself was a construct. It was created 
So many hundreds of years ago when censuses were being taken as a way to create division. And it changed every time they changed the census, they changed the way they de describe people. And it doesn't mean that we don't have different heritage or cultural backgrounds or that we don't come from different, as you say, ritual or ceremony. But the business of defining a race for a person is all done for the purpose of power or greed or in some way to underprivilege some folks, whether it's in the form of voting or whether it's financing schools. And that's a story that has been forgotten by present day children because they don't really see how it tracks where that came from. And it's something worth learning about. It's something that we need to take the power out of that, out of race. It's an awkward part of human existence, really. It is. And it's not timeless. It's just not a timeless way to organize ourselves. And the ritual, like so much of these ritual and ceremonies are informed by African traditional spiritualities that place a huge emphasis on ancestors. And this is a universal thing. This was in Europe, pre-Christianity, an emphasis on ancestors and honoring those who came before you. And it's, I don't hardly know a culture that doesn't have a concept of honoring ancestors. And I think that when you take it to that concept of where are my people connected to land? Where are the bodies of my people? Where are their bones buried? Where is their blood laying in the earth? You would find that it's all over. Our people have been moving across this globe for for thousands of years, thousands of years, way before 500 years where now I present and I would claim to be a black woman. I would claim to be a Haitian woman, an African-American woman or woman of African descent. But if I go back a thousand years, my ancestors do not look, all of them do not look the way that I look today, which makes it tricky because then I have to, what do I do with the Irish ancestors in there? What do I do with the Thai ancestors in there? And what do I do with race when I realize that my own ancestors are the people I would love to say are not worth redemption now? I, it's, it's really, really tricky when you go farther back. And one of my influences for the ritual and ceremony is Dr. Elder Maladoma Tomei and these practices that he brings to the West from Burkina Faso, from his people the Dagara people. And when you integrate that, like in fatherland, claiming your own stories, it's like, you don't get to pick and choose. You don't get to pick and choose. You don't, you know, I'm black today, but a thousand years ago, I don't know the stories of how all these people came to be in my bloodline and the beautiful things they've done and the complicated stories that exist. Like you said earlier, like knowing people's stories, I think if we could just start with even an investment in our own histories, I, I think at least we could have dialogue about what we need to do with this race thing. Uh, what do we need to do with it? Well, the good thing for your bloodline is that you can always go back as far as you want and look for that little bite out of the ear. And then you can find your people. <laughs> race aside, it's like everybody with a little bite out of their ear, come over here for the family reunion. Yes. Life is very messy and complicated. As you say in Fatherland, you talk about learning to hold love and anger in the same hand, that you recognize that story as a love story, albeit an unorthodox one. And I think that's all relationships have that complication, that we as human are, are we're flawed and we hope that we can outweigh the good with the bad. I don't think one among us that can't say that there are things that, that they weren't proud of in their lifetime. Some choice they made or words they shared. So how do we have the grace to move forward and not punish ourselves for that? That's the question. <laughs> how, how do we have grace? I'm finding that even the practice of grace is, I don't always like it, if I'm being honest. I really, I black and white thinking is so great. These are bad people. These are good people. It makes life easy. You know, I can just villainize you and move on about my life. And I keep, I hate whenever I get hit in the head with the remembrance that you have to be able to hold the complication of, of humanity because I have sons. 
and I have a daughter now and they're going to have to hold my complicated <laughs> humanity. I hope they find a way as much as I think that I am great. <laughs> I hope that they can hold my complicated pieces with some grace too, albeit some people are harder to hold grace for. As I continue to age and live, I find that it's a pretty worthwhile endeavor, although pretty soul taxing to hold grace. I'm reading a book called Hallelujah Anyway by Anne Lamott. It's about discovering mercy. Yes. Yeah, it's really, mercy is a really interesting word that she explores and uh, it's a worthy read. I mean, I think you know it. That's what's interesting. You defined it as the way our lives have been going, that the opposite, the binary situation, you describe it as black and white. And I think that's also words that we don't want to use because it makes it sound like there's a good and a bad and that that identifies one or the other as being good or bad. But it is that binary situation where pick a side. And it has gotten that way with virtually everything because everything is easy to politicize or weaponize, a mask, a vaccine, anything. And then that means so much more about you, how you vote, where you go to church, what you do. And everybody wants to look at it as they're not on my team. And I feel like that's the loss, the greatest loss is that loss of nuance, of all those rainbow colors in between, of all those conversations. They aren't shared. We don't sit at a table together and have a common argument and then walk away civilly. We walk away mad or we reject that person on Facebook and go, I don't really want to hear that. And so that light switch, I'll call it the on and off thing, is always active. We're hot triggered to turn off family members, neighbors, corporations, knock them off their pedestal for whatever reason. And also they know, they being the universal they, they know that they can get that light switch turned on by making a donation and they can be performative and get people to come back and buy their product. So it really is about nuance. It's about keeping that long dialogue, that conversation. When you write a play and you are able to make those opposing arguments and present that, then an audience is forced in a conversation, albeit sitting there silently, they get to see two sides of a story. They get to see all the things in between. So that's one of the things I very much appreciate about playwrights and writers is at the time to explore even things they're not with. Contrary to, to acting, I, I do find that some of my favorite writers are broaching that task of finding that middle, that place of nuance. Toni Morrison, some of these current playwrights that I whose work really, really inspires me, like Erica Dickerson Dispenza and Alicia Harris, and telling the stories that don't get to be told. And they're complicated and they're messy, but I'm grateful that we're in a time right now where there's even places for writers to do this and to be able to be seen on platforms. And I think a large part of that, what we're seeing, I think with writers who are Black, right now is we're seeing it, this increase because of the murder of George Floyd and the resulting protest have opened up like the activists who were already doing this work, but with this pandemic coinciding with the murder of George Floyd being broadcast and Ahmaud Arbery just allowed finally this crack in the door to be kind of pushed open to allow for different storytelling all kinds of different storytelling that just didn't happen, weren't able to happen. I don't think Fatherland or, or Whale or some of the pieces that are coming out would have happened in a pre-pandemic, pre-George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery culture. It would have been very, very scary to do. It would be very, very hard to find the audience ready for it. I agree. And what's interesting is we don't want to patch the crack. The crack is what lets the light in, and we have to break it open a little bit more. If you're that person and it's your time to open it a little further for the next person, I think that's the best the best we can do with our work and our art. Even what you're doing for grief, I think there is not a person alive that is not going to experience. We're talking about all levels, just as you said, loss of a job, loss of routine, loss of all kinds of things. But loss of life, when you start to lose a parent, a spouse, a 
child. And all of those things uh, were happening even at a greater rate over the last couple of years. You would think that the pandemic's great blessing to us would be that we can see each other as human beings, that we could understand that globally, this thing didn't care where it started. It didn't care where it went to. It was a hitchhiker and it just wanted to ride from one person to the next and find its way to another party that was vulnerable. That's what it is. It's that what happens on one side of the world affects the other side of the world. It's the butterfly effect, if you know that reference, but it's one of those things, the littlest thing is something that we all have to be mindful of. And boy, if we couldn't just take that one lesson out of it and wake up in some ways, I know that you have a podcast called Woke and Half Asleep. It was such a great title because it's exactly where we are. There's a woke behavior, and yet people are still sleepwalking through the buckies, buying their licorice and their sodas and pretending nothing's happening at all. So we are in the midst of a very woke zombie apocalypse. And I think that's what happens when, again, it's like concepts become democratized and then they become at the level of intellect and and they nothing changes there. I just keep and we can see it. It's just I grapple with with what needs to happen. You want certain concepts to be mainstream, but the moment they become mainstream, they start to lose their relevance to the actual part of us that needs to embody that. I don't know how you get people to do that. The only way I really, I, again, I keep coming back to art being the only way that so many of the people I look up to have found to do that. And James Baldwin. And, and I think it's why, as I keep asking myself after every project, what, what do you want to do next? What do you want to create next? And I just keep coming back to this idea that I am a cultural worker. If, if the art is not being used to push this forward, then there's almost no real necessity for me to do it. There's not a real impetus to do it. And as much as I wish I could, like the idea of art for art's sake, in my cultural understanding, it's just not a strong compulsion to create art just for the sake of it. I think that's what makes you a real, true artist which is that you're not frivolous with your art, that you look at mediums. So that's what makes you a great multidisciplinary artist is that you look at these mediums of film and dance and music, sound effects, projection, the smoke machine, the lighting, whatever you use, you're storytelling in a way that is meant to advance this cultural narrative that is to be left behind or that is to be taken by the next person and pass the ball and I, I think that's a, a powerful mission statement and maybe why your work resonates so much is that you're not doing it for vanity. You're not doing it for marquee name. In the end, you are a change maker. You're leaving a message in a bottle for somebody who happens to come to those waves of grief and find that bottle coming ashore. That was beautiful. <laughs> you're a writer. That was <laughs> that was beautiful. I'm going to sit with that tonight. I'm going to write that in my diary that this in a bottle washing up on the like the waves of grief. I really appreciate that. And I and I like that because I think that like some of my peers who create in similar fashion and for similar reasons, it feels sometimes, you know, you grapple with here if I could leverage my skill set in a more mainstream direction or in this direction? Do I want to be famous? You start to think about what you want your thing to be and money and fame can be really compelling. Lord have mercy. By the way, you're deserving of it. It's not, a, it's not an evil thing. It's a question of you are deserving of it and it is a worthwhile tool when you have access to it. And I'm hopeful that your voice is found and wants to be amplified for people who they want to invest in the very kind of thing that you're building. But for us to be discovered, it does take a great deal of connection. It, it means people have to be able to view it. They have to be able to feel it foremost. And then they have to want to 
support that or be that a cheerleader for that. And the arts is often not looked at as the first place to put your money. When you look at school systems, athletics and things like that, which I don't put down, but they get the lion's share of the money for the football team. They don't get it for the choir. And it's a very, very interesting thing that I think it might have been Karen Olivo that talked about football being a game where one team has to win and one has to lose. And that outcome is the division that you and I talked about. But in the arts, when people go to see a theater show, everybody wins when they leave and have that feeling or that upbeat thing. And so I guess if the funders of these things understood what they were investing in, they would at least see some equality in distributing that money to, to be sure that they're impacting kids after school in other ways that can improve our world, that the leaders of the future are those kids that we're denying now to access to things. It's a very frustrating on all fronts that I, I'm not saying I have the solution, but whenever somebody says build a wall, I think a wall is meant to keep people out of something. And what are we trying to keep them out of? Oh, schools, libraries, parks. So why don't we take the money for a wall and labor and why don't we build those things for people so they would want to be exactly where they are, improving their lives and improving the planet. But instead, we focus on divide. This is not a political rant. It's just to say bridges beat walls by 100 miles. So that's an architectural statement. That's all I'll say. It's the Oxford comma of architecture. It is. <laughs> I feel it. I do. I think uh, I'm really excited for the future of theater and have a few concerns too, but I see that I think theater also is this place like the way in which that we approach theater has just seems like the art form itself hasn't changed. You know, we have the canon of good theater and we have the canon of good American theater and it's just so exclusionary. The form, even the form that we embody it in has been exclusionary. And I was so excited that this digital theater became a, like a, an actual new space that had some legitimacy in the theater realm because of the necessity for it. And then you realize, oh, we could have done this the whole time. We could have had theater that was accessible to anybody, right? We could have had theater that people can access where they're not having to come into theaters where they have children and parents can't come to the theater because they don't have childcare and people of different physical abilities are not able to be comfortably accommodated in a theater space. And then we saw this opening of the narratives and, oh, I love Alicia Harris. And she has this show called What to Send Up When It Goes Down. And it's a ritual in a traditional theater. And then we saw that theaters were willing to produce this and it was traveling around. And and Dominique Morisot, who's got shows on Broadway, she's recently talked about this idea of dismantling Broadway these new conversations about dismantling Broadway, this theater being such a viewed as a white art form that had a class designation afforded to it and creating theater that kind of tears down this wall and allows it to open up. I'm really excited to see, hopefully, I see some of it being walked back as theaters are doing their hundredth production of Christmas Carol. No shame to Christmas Carol. Love it. Yes. But I see now that we're opening up, some of the theaters are going back to walking it back. It's like almost reconstruction era of theater. I hope that it keeps moving forward. Hopefully they can do what is very important, which is the reason that A Christmas Carol or Nutcracker is done every Christmas is that they make a shit ton of money so they can afford to do other plays. So what we hope is that they begin to choose yes. additional original work that they don't do. 12 Christmas carols around the clock, which is ultimately what ends up happening in the decision-making process. You mentioned digital theater, and I want to be sure that the listener knows they can access your show, Whale and Fatherland, by going to CandiceDemeza.com. Your last name is spelled D-M-E-Z-A. It's a great way for people to experience that on a personal level or with others if they want to watch it on there that you make it accessible to them. And of course, there's still a level of privilege, which is that you have to have a computer or internet to do that. So I acknowledge that, but but nonetheless, it is there for anybody with no cost. There's so many rich 
lessons in these pieces. You talk in Fatherland about you always have what you need within you and a long way home is still a way home. Those two things alone are very powerful. You talk about grief and when grief calls, you put the kettle on. And I feel like anybody that wants to explore this piece alone in private, they can get to it by going to your website. And I'm so grateful for your vulnerability and your willingness to share today. It's awesome having you. Thank you so much. It's been great to to talk about this piece and share with you. And And I will say that my regret at the time is that I also did not close caption these pieces. But I think that because pushing forward on the accessibility is like all these oversights that you realize after the fact. So I do want to acknowledge that I think Fatherland will be closed captioned because YouTube offers closed caption services. I don't believe whale. I don't believe that where whale is stored allows that. And so I do want to apologize that that is not accessible because of not having the, the closed captioning. But I hope to remedy that with work moving forward. And so it's been great to to just share vulnerably with you and talk art and commas and bridges and architecture. Good. I appreciate your mindfulness in mentioning that about your pieces, but you have a big heart and you share it obviously very willingly. So I invite everyone to get to know Candace DeMeza much better through her website. Cheers, Candace. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative under the skilled producership of Amanda Rosenberg with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Casey Franco, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun because dot com is just too dot common and dot fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. Your call to come.